So I had this weird dream uh, that I got a ch- chance to uh, to preach in my home church, and um, there was a bagpiper doing music, and then there was this video where I spoofed the most interesting man in the world. And uh, when I woke up, it struck me that it would be really hard to come up with a good segue from that to preaching. And I didn't come up with any good ideas. So if you come up with any good ideas, come tell me. And if I'm ever in that very unique, incredibly unlikely scenario, then then I'll use that. So uh, as Bob mentioned, we're in a series right now called Credo. And uh, we're going through old creeds. And so creed or credo is Latin for believe. And so the, the old creeds of the Christian faith are just a synopsis of what we believe as Christians. And so right now we're going through the Apostles' Creed, which was written in the first century A.D. So the Christian faith, the faith that follows Christ as Savior and Lord, is 2,000 years old. And the, the foundational creed that we recite and that we take our theology from, uh, in addition to Scripture, is the Apostles' Creed in that that was established right as Christianity was being established. So it's very, very special to us, obviously. So BP preached last week on the first line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And he talked about the story of the prodigal son and really drew out the reality that God is our father, is not uh, the scary caricature with the lightning bolt, but he is a good God that wants good things for us. And this week, we're focusing on the second line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And we're really honing in on that, those last two words, Christ is our Lord, uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, Christ's lordship is a very integral part of, of who he is for us and who he is for all of creation. It's crucial that we understand that. And tagged to that is the reality that we don't really have lords in our context, and for you, if you tried to brainstorm the lords that you know of, maybe you come up with Lord Grantham or Lord Voldemort, and um, and neither of those are really helpful in understanding the the role of a lord. And so, so we're going to look at what what a, what is a lord really? What does the lord do? And then evaluate uh, Jesus as lord. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity for all of us to gather here and worship you and hear from you. I thank you for the very humbling opportunity to speak your truth and to speak about you. I ask that you would uh, remove anything that is distracting from this environment, that you would uh, remove anything that would be distracting from, from me as a person, and that you would let your word and your truth and who you are as our Lord really stand out very, very clearly. Uh, We worship you today. Amen. So what is the Lord? Uh, We can rely on Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, for just a clear definition. So first of all, a Lord is a person who has authority, control, or power over others, a master, a chief, a ruler. This is pretty clear cut. And then secondly, a feudal superior, the proprietor of a manor. So Lord Grantham, he's the proprietor of a manor, and that's probably what we typically think of. So if you really think about the American culture, none of these words are super appealing to us. To have someone in authority, in control, in power over us, a master, a chief, a ruler, 
a feudal superior. Like all of this goes way against our grain of autonomy and independence and really doing our own thing. And I've actually got a clip I'd like to show you that really, I think, very skillfully unpacks our perspective on lords and how we respond to them. It's pretty intellectual and academic and weighty. So hopefully uh, you won't get too lost in this. Left to my own devices, we'd go on for several more minutes. Uh, But my wife, who is not a fan of Monty Python, uh, helped me trim it down a little bit. Uh, But in this clip, you really have what our response is to the concept of a Lord. We're suspicious. We assume that there's exploitation. We assume that there is corruption. And we assume that uh, they just don't have our best interests in mind. And like those two people there, um, they would rather gather filth than have a lord over them. And so that's, that's our typical response to, to a lord. And so this morning, what I want to do is look at what is it that a lord really does, and then, since we're in the midst of presidential debate season, really put Jesus up as a candidate for a lord and ask, how does he fill these roles, and is he worth being our lord? So what exactly is the Lord? First role that a Lord plays, a Lord establishes and enforces law. And right here is where we get off track from the American way. You know, we've got three different branches of government that break up these roles. We have a branch that establishes the laws. We have a different branch that enforces the law. And then we have a third branch that evaluates the laws and determines whether or not they're good laws. And so that power is really spread out. We have a Lord The Lord establishes the laws and enforces the laws. They are the one-stop shop. So to evaluate Jesus as Lord, we have to ask the question, what what type of laws would would Jesus have? Uh, But before we do that, we got to understand what what are the options? What are different types of context for the laws you'd have under a Lord? And so your first option is no laws, a kingdom that is just completely lawless. And I think what you see throughout uh, history, lot, there's lots of examples of kingdoms that were lawless. They ultimately lead to chaos and destruction. Anytime you look at a, a place or a time in history where there were no laws, either immediately or eventually, it crumbled into chaos and destruction. And there's plenty of examples we can look to. This is a picture from uh, the genocide that took place in Rwanda. And some of you may have seen the movie that came out about that Hotel Rwanda. Uh, but the really, the really breathtaking thing about this particular genocide, because there's been many genocides in human history, is it was completely internal. There was no invading force. And within the country of Rwanda, in four months, 800,000 people were murdered and over 2 million refugees were created. Just within the country of Rwanda, not a single outsider. It was a result of the breakdown of law. Without law, chaos and destruction is the only inevitable result. So that's no laws. Your next option is evil laws. What we'd call evil laws. And evil laws are eventually going to result in oppression and corruption. And again, we can look all over human history to see examples of evil laws in place. And this is a picture from um, probably the the most prominent example we think of in World War II. I'm reading a book called The Monuments Men, and a movie was was made about that. And this is a small group of soldiers 
who were trying to rescue art that had been pillaged by the Nazis. And one thing that's in the book that doesn't come through in the movies is there's copies of memos that are going back and forth between German officers, and they refer to this plunder as ownerless Jewish cultural artifacts. Ownerless. Because the laws have been changed to oppress. So with evil laws, the people in power are corrupted, and the people that are not in power are ultimately oppressed. Just to give you context, this is one of hundreds of cathedrals that were stacked full of art, and you can see that's a full-grown man, and beside him is a stack two stories high of paintings and sculptures and various forms of art. So when you have evil laws in place, ultimately it can only lead to oppression and corruption. And our third option is good laws. Good laws. Good laws lead to freedom and protection. We have some examples of that, thankfully, in our history as well. One of my favorites is when the government recognized that African Americans were not being given separate but equal schools. They were being given a very poor opportunity to education. And so laws were changed both to give people the freedom to receive the education and protection. There were National Guardsmen at the schools who were integrated to protect the students who were moving in. And so that law was created in order to bring freedom and also to bring protection. So a natural question that would come from this would be, well, how do you how do you know if a law is evil? How do you know if a law is good? How do you evaluate a law? And it really is one of those situations where the proof is in the pudding. When you establish a law, you look at what it produces, and whatever it produces determines what kind of law it is. If the law produces oppression and corruption, that's an evil law. And if a law produces freedom and protection, that's a good law. And obviously we're looking at extremes and We really should have a spectrum where we have evil laws on one end of the spectrum and we have good laws on the other. And and every law that's established falls somewhere on that spectrum, but it gives us a frame of reference to ask that question. If Jesus is Lord, what are the types of laws that Jesus would establish and enforce? Where on that spectrum between oppression and corruption and freedom and protection would they lie? And in Scripture, in the New Testament, that really unpacks this idea of the Christian faith, there's a series of letters that were written by various uh, servants of Christ to the churches that were scattered around the area. And uh, one of them was written to a a church in a town called Galatia. And at the time the the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians, the, the church there was really struggling with, uh, they, they were latched onto the old set of laws that they used to, to separate themselves from other communities and other faiths, and laws that they used to try to get right in the eyes of God, to accept God's, um, to get God's acceptance from, from them. And uh, Christ had changed things in a way that made the way that they were following those laws irrelevant and even oppressive. And so this is what uh, Paul says at the beginning of his argument. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What Paul is telling the Galatians is that 
the, the way you're following these laws, the way you're trying to get God's approval, the way you're trying to live your life is really oppressive. It's like you're, you're slaves. You're making yourself a slave. And Christ came to establish a kingdom that resulted in your freedom, not your enslavement. And he goes throughout an entire chapter really hammering this point that they do not need to be slaves again. They don't need to pull other people into slavery. And he concludes his argument with this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A primary element of Jesus's, I, I guess, platform, if he were running for office, would be something he said in the Gospels, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He did not come to abolish the law. We just saw that with, with no law, the result is chaos and destruction. Jesus didn't come to bring chaos and destruction. Uh, destruction. So he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to help us to understand what the law was really about. The people of Israel that had initially been given the law had taken it and received it and were using it in such a way that it was bringing oppression, it was bringing corruption. So Jesus came to say, no, this is what the law is really about. And he summarized the law with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule that people of every faith, people of no faith, people antagonistic to faith, definitely agree with. So Jesus did not come to oppress with the law, but to bring freedom. So why Jesus is Lord? Because his laws are worth following. Because they're good and exist to make me flourish. Which is why the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Our, our knee-jerk reaction to laws, to limitations, is to say that they're limiting. They're bad. They're, they're oppressive. But in every aspect of life, we need them. Even, you know, when I, when I preach afterwards, the thing I want to do is eat an unhealthy lunch and watch some football. And football is full of rules, just tons of rules. If someone's starting to watch football for the first time, at every turn they're asking, like, why he threw that flag? What does that mean? He made this motion. What is it? What's going on? And it's hard to, to get tra- keep track of all of them. But the reason those rules are established is not to make the, gun, the game less fun. It's to really free up the players to play the game to its fullest. And in the NFL, especially in recent years, there's been a lot of new rules established specifically for the protection of players to make sure that as they're playing the game to the fullest, that they're also protected. And so even as something as silly as football, we see the example that laws are not inherently oppressive. It depends on what type of law you have. And good laws are established to bring freedom and to bring protection. And that's what Jesus' laws were about. And that's why when we see Jesus' laws as what they really are, it doesn't make us cower down. It makes us celebrate and worship. So first of all, the Lord establishes and enforces law. Secondly, a Lord expands their kingdom. And if you are a grammar person, know that I looked online and both the Wall Street Journal and Grammarly.com told me that I could use their as a singular pronoun. So go and be blessed. 
So the Lord expands their kingdom, whether, whether it's because the Lord is motivated by expanding their wealth and their power, or the Lord really believes that their rule and their laws are good laws and will help people, lords tend to expand their kingdom. So if we're evaluating the worthiness of Jesus as a lord, we have to ask what kind of kingdom is it that he would be expanding? We, we looked at his laws and said, you know, we think that it's not that he has no laws, so he's not bringing about chaos and destruction. He's not bringing about evil laws, so he's not bringing oppression and corruption. He's bringing good laws. And so you'd think that if you've got a kingdom with no laws, that's going to be an expansion of chaos and destruction. If you've got evil laws, it's going to be an expansion of oppression and corruption. If you have good laws, that means that kingdom is going to be an expansion of freedom and protection. So does it, does it work out that way? Do, do these good laws result in a good kingdom that brings freedom and protection to more people? Another one of the letters in the New Testament, uh, also by Paul, written to the church in Rome, in, in Romans, uh, at one point in the letter, he is uh, engaging in an argument that's going on within the church because there's this big debate over whether or not it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And I work with college students at Berry College, and uh, College age is the age where really like lots of debates and different worldviews are clashing together. And pretty, pretty often you can walk through the student center and hear debates going on. I've never heard one over whether or not food sacrificed to idols. Is this okay? Is this bad? Is this dangerous? Um, so probably not really a relevant issue for us today. But I think in the Bible Belt, we have a really great analogy in alcohol. Because you've got a very large segment of the population that believes that one of the seven deadly sins is consuming alcohol. And you've got a pretty large segment of the population that will serve alcohol in their small groups. And there's a lot of judgment from both of those groups in both directions. Lots of judgment. And so Paul, talking about the alcohol issue of their day, food sacrifice to idols, said, you guys are totally missing the point. First of all, you need to stop judging each other based on what your perspective is. And secondly, man, if you're around some people that are weirded out or thrown off by food sacrificed by idols, eat something else. It's not a big deal. This is what he tells the Romans. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says, you guys are are focusing in on these little, tiny, insignificant issues and missing the whole point of my kingdom. The whole point of my kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, two of these words, righteousness and peace, we really, in our context, have lost the, the meaning of from a scripture standpoint. So I've got kind of a rewording of it. Jesus deserves to be Lord because his kingdom is worth serving, because it results in people treating each other well. That's the fruit of righteousness, people treating each other well. Jesus said the law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. So the result of his kingdom is people treating each other well, wholeness in all of life. The word peace comes from the Hebrew shalom, which means wholeness, completeness. So the kingdom results in people treating each other well, in wholeness in all of life, in being full of joy. 
And I think that the kingdom of God as a concept gets an incredibly bad rap in our culture because so many people who claim Jesus is Lord make his platform a bunch of small issues. Are you Republican or Democrat? What's your stance on gun control? Do you drink? Do you not drink? And Paul and Christ would say to us, you're missing the point. Because my kingdom is about righteousness. It's about people treating each other well. My kingdom is about peace. It's about experiencing wholeness in all of life. And my kingdom is about joy. Fullness of joy. That's why, again, the psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All of the earth, let all of the earth be part of his kingdom. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come and do his presence with singing. So first, the Lord establishes and enforces law. And we believe that Jesus has established good laws that bring freedom and bring protection. The Lord expands their kingdom. And we believe that Jesus' kingdom is not about nitty-gritty, the the nitpicky little items, but about righteousness and peace and joy. And lastly, the Lord protects and provides for their people. In times in history and in regions of the world where lords are prominent, People give their allegiance to the Lord's because they expect that that Lord is going to protect them from an enemy with an army. And the Lord's going to make sure that they have what they need to get by. They have that that provision. So the question is, is Jesus interested in that? Is Jesus completely self-consumed and expanding his kingdom? Or is he also concerned with our provision and our protection? Uh, If Jesus on earth, was trying to run for office, which is exactly the opposite of what he was doing, much to the chagrin of his followers. His most popular, most famous campaign speech would have been the Sermon on the Mount. It was a time that he really talked a lot about his perspective and his beliefs and what his kingdom was about. And so I want to read a significant portion from that Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, Nor about your body, what will you put on? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says your your primary role is to expand my kingdom. It's not because I'm on a power trip. It's because I know that my kingdom will bring righteousness and peace and joy. That my kingdom will result in people loving one another, experiencing wholeness in all of life, and being full of joy. So that's your primary role, to expand my kingdom. But as you do that, know that you will be provided for. This is not a prosperity gospel of sign up now and you get a Mercedes. But it's an assurance that 
because I love you, I'm going to make sure that you are cared for. So Jesus deserves to be Lord because he's interested in our protection and provision. So we follow his laws because they're good and exist to make us flourish. We serve his kingdom, longing to see it rule all creation. And we trust him for all protection and provision. To this point, we've really been talking about the traditional lordship in our life now. But there's a more foundational issue for each of us, and that is that we are each born lawless. We are born with no law. We are born full of chaos and destruction. The fall. If you question that, if you're a parent, just, you know, let your kids exist for a little while with no law, no rules. You will have two results. Chaos and destruction in full measure. And it's not that they learned it anywhere. They don't learn it in school to be chaotic and destructive. It's just part of their DNA. As fallen humans, we are filled up with with chaos and destruction. And if that is going to change for any of us, we have to have a Lord. We are created to need a Lord. Not one that oppresses, not one that is corrupt, but the one, one that desires for us to be free and to be protected. And so, for our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin, to be chaos and destruction, who knew no chaos and destruction. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the perfect son of God from all eternity, having experienced no chaos and no destruction, came to our chaotic and destroyed world to take on our chaos and our destruction for our sake. So that we might be. What do we do with that? Depends on where you're at. And the, and the answer to the question is Jesus, Lord. For some of you, you don't know if Jesus deserves to be Lord. And that's valid. It's a valid question. If that's where you're at, what I would challenge you to do is first, um, read the book of Mark. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's millions of them online. I would recommend the NIV. Read through the book of Mark and just ask, be skeptical. Ask, is, does this seem true? Does this seem valid, what I'm reading? And if so, does Jesus seem like someone who's worthy of being my Lord? And then ask someone you know who appears to claim Jesus as Lord. Ask them about their experience and their reasoning for having Jesus as Lord. And if those two things go well, tell Jesus that you know that he is Lord and ask him to be your Lord. Take it slow. It's an important step. For some of us today, we are sold on Jesus' love but not his laws. Man, Jesus is great. Love him. I'll take his forgiveness all day. But I'm going to do my own thing. 
I've, I've got my own life to live. I don't really buy into the fact that he has laws. I really think that he kind of abolished all that, and it's all grace. If that's kind of your philosophy of life, I think what you need to do is really reflect on whether or not you feel free. In your deepest heart, when you're alone, do you feel free or do you feel captive? Because I would guess that you feel held captive, not free. Because lawlessness can only bring chaos and destruction. And second, you need to recognize that Christ's role as Savior and Lord are not separable. As a matter of fact, to, to say I'm sold on Jesus' love and not his laws doesn't logically work out because his law is part of his love. It's not his love and his law. Because his law brings freedom and protection, his law is part of his love. Again, as parents, you see that. We create rules for our children for their protection. So our rules, our law, is part of our love. It cannot be separated. And then for the rest of us, we probably fall into this category. I claim Jesus is Lord, but feel guilty because I don't follow his laws or serve his kingdom well. I know my track record as a follower of Jesus as Lord is not so great. I think there's three simple steps. One is repent. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do consistently fall short, but the good news is that with repenting, we rejoice. We rejoice because John 8.36 says, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Not free intermittently, not free based on your behavior, not free based on how well you're following the laws or expanding his kingdom. Free, period. And last, we remain. I actually much prefer the word abide, but once I saw I had two R's, you know, the old Southern Baptist in me just had to find it. Uh, In John 15, when Jesus was having his last night with his disciples, And he was telling them, if you're going to expand my kingdom, here's the key. He did not give a 15-step strategic plan. He said, if you're going to to bear the fruit of the kingdom, if you're going to bear the fruit of freedom and protection and righteousness and peace and joy, the one key is to abide in me, to be with me. The journey as someone under Christ's lordship is not a linear progression or an exponential progression. It's just a crazy, curvy line. But as we abide in him, we experience his forgiveness, we experience his healing, we experience his freedom. So we come away today with this truth. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We receive Christ Jesus as Lord, but we need constant reminders to walk with him. It's a lifelong journey of walking with him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for being a good Lord. Thank you for being a perfect Lord. Thank you for deserving our service, our loyalty, and our worship. 
not ultimately because you give us freedom and protection, but because it's the only thing you can do. It's because it's who you are. I confess that I, um, I sometimes chase after lawlessness instead of your kingdom. I ask for each of us today, wherever we're at, that we would look to you as Lord. We would submit to you and we would take on your good laws, your good kingdom for our good and for your glory. Amen. Before we have the benediction, uh, after the benediction, please stay standing because we're going to be blessed by the bagpipes again. And so just stand and reflect on the goodness of God. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.